The Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yagamalark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are coming to you today for the last section of Frederick the Great. I am bummed that we are going to be... Le- I'm excited to be moving on to other material, of course. It's one of the fun things in any scholarly pursuit is when you're able to move on to the next subject and, and immerse yourself in new material. But... It's also kind of sad when you get really attached to a particular author or a particular idea, and you're like, man, like, uh, it's it's like going to a theme park, and you're like, I know I have to go and leave this theme park eventually, but uh, I just want to ride the roller coaster one more time. Okay, so first of all, you and I have very different relationships with theme parks. <laughs> but, Fair enough. Uh, now, I know this one is, uh, as I've been calling him, your dead guy boyfriend. Yeah. You're a huge Freddy fan. I liked him better than I liked Machiavelli. I think I liked Sun Tzu better than I like Frederick. I mean, Sun Tzu's material is incredibly accessible. He, he, the, the, the simplicity with which Sun Tzu writes and the directness uh, with which Sun Tzu writes means... I mean, there's a reason why his work is one of the longest surviving works on the subject and why people continue to consult. It's, it's so... It's so good. It's so uh, applicable to so many different situations, and it's hard to it's hard to discount Sun Tzu for sure. I just like Frederick because I mean he's again he's he's Frederick Mercury of this current era. I mean he was unapologetic about who he was. He was bombastic. He had his own style, and it worked. And it was it was beautiful. It was just a beautiful thing. Plus, I could see Freddie or Freddie Mercury wearing a hussar coat if he wanted to. Like uh, he, he could pull it off. Awesome. He could pull it off. So I want to address something real quick. Uh, you, you guys might be hearing something on my feed today, uh, uh, like a, a hum, a rush, like a vibration. There is some heavy equipment being operated outside of my recording studio at the moment. They're doing con- some construction on the road. So uh, if you hear a strange noise in the back of, of my sound, that's where that's coming from. And I, I apologize for that. We're going to do what we can to filter it out in the editing process, but it is uh, it's just what it is today so we appreciate you guys uh being patient and dealing with that as we are trying to be patient and deal with that as well <laughs> now those of you who follow the uh in the uh in instagram and the facebook will maybe have seen a picture uh, now by the time this episode comes out it will have been uh, kind of old news as it were but i got the indomitus box i was one of the first people to walk in and pick it up out of the store here in missoula montana i was very thrilled about that fact and of course, I got home and started reading the book straight away. So this is day three of me studying the rule book. I am about to go over some of those rules for you Warhammer cats, uh, some of the some of the differences between 8th and 9th edition. First, I just want to nerd out a little bit about the box. It has some amazing stuff in it. If you're a Primaris Marine player uh, or, or just a, you know, a Stardis player, this, this is, these are some great close combat options that we have been kind of sorely lacking in the Astartes lists. I cannot wait to use them in my own list. I've got enough stuff to now just to play a, a completely Primaris list, and I am stoked for Primaris it. Primaris are like the super, super soldiers, right? Yes. Uh, the, the Primaris Marines are like Space Marines, but better. So uh, Belisarius Call took the design of the Space Marine, was able to improve upon it. They have better armor, better weapons. Yeah, they're, they're an improvement on an already pretty good design. So they're cool, but uh, I, I split this box with my friend Juniper, who you guys uh, will have heard in season one of this show. She plays the Necrons, and this box made me want to start playing Necrons. They got some really 
cool stuff in this, but the Plasmancer especially I want to draw attention to. He's basically an out-of-control Psyker that doesn't have to worry about some of the issues with Psyking. So yeah, I, I, I could nerd out about this for a while, but I guess the, the, the point of the matter is it's very much well worth it. It's a great way to bring in the new edition, and I am really looking forward to playing some of these models in my own army. I'll let you guys know the ones I like the best, um, you know, when we finally get around to actually being able to do that sort of thing. But... Real quick, I wanted to do a rundown of the 9th edition rules. Uh, so you guys who, who don't play Warhammer, this might not necessarily apply to you, but for those of us who do, it's, it's quite important. Now, I understand that this is, again, going to be coming out three weeks after this book has dropped, uh, but for anybody who hasn't been able to grab it, or perhaps uh, if you if you just, you know, it's, it, it, it's been a busy summer for everybody. So if it ha perhaps slips your mind and you just... We were asked specifically for this, too. We were. We were. Like, I, I had people messaging me being like, are you going to talk about this? I'm like, well, I'm not, but I'm sure Malark will. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about it real quick. And I, I'm sorry that it's coming to you guys a little bit late. I'm sure other shows have talked about this ad nauseum, but we're just going to go over it real quick um, so that people kind of understand. It's very similar. If you've played 8th edition, it's, it's very similar to 8th edition. Um, so I'm not going to go over every rule in specific, just some of the big changes. Now, I this again, I've only had this book for three days. I have been taking meticulous notes, but I am also human. I miss things. So if there's something that I missed that I, that I didn't go over my notes, please do not take this as gospel. Do not quote me during your next game saying, you know what, Malark said this was okay, or this is <laughs> the rule that Malark said. So, Well, don't you know that you're the universal arbiter of how the rules work, Malark? I, you know, I, if that were the case, we'd be in trouble. We'd all, we would all be, so be in, happy, though. I'd be happy, but we'd be in trouble. I, I, it would, I would, my happiness would last for maybe two weeks before I realized that all of my decisions were wrong. <laughs> so yeah, let's go through this real quick. Um, by and large, it was a lot of rule refinement and specification. All of the beta stuff that we saw coming out at the end of eighth edition kind of got crystallized and finalized in ninth edition. And there's a lot of elimination of gotcha hammers. Uh, a lot of the, the phases are far more specifically defined so that certain things can't be glossed over. For instance, uh, heroic interventions at the end of the charge phase used to be that if you just transitioned quickly from charge to fight phase and your opponent forgot to declare heroic interventions, that you just glossed over it. Now, your opponent has to actively say, I have no more heroic interventions because it's part of the phase. You actually have to check with your opponent, make sure they don't, they don't have anything to do this to do, and then you can move on to the fight phase. So I'm glad that they actually included some of that specificity in here because while in my, my local group, like my, my local uh, gaming group, we're pretty good. Like, we're very cordial people. We were, we gave each other the benefit of the doubt most of the time. And not everybody is like that. So I'm glad to see that, that this is kind of being enforced in some way. Um, you know, coherency is going to be enforced a lot stronger. You got a two-inch horizontal uh, distance between models, which is the same as last edition. Five inches vertically. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was for the last edition, but they're defining... A lot, a lot of these, these things are going to be five inches vertically. You're going to hear that a lot. And um, if they're under six models, you have to. Each model has to be in coherency with at least one other model. If there's more than six models in a unit, you have to be in coherency with two models. So no more stringing out large units across the field to occupy two objectives. Like you have to have a really big unit in order to do that in this edition, which I think kind of makes sense. Again, like the, the, uh, a large unit draws its strength from that 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 force of numbers, that weight, that press of being able to look around and be like, okay, here are all my buddies. I guess I don't want to run away. But if you're all strung out as far as you can possibly be, what's going to keep you from turning tail and running? So I kind of like that. Engagement range, again, has been... Uh, you got that one inch um, around and then a five inch vertical. I'm not sure if that was specifically defined that way in eighth, but it is in ninth. There's a new phase. 
the command phase, where you're going to be getting command points every single turn. I like this, where because I'm I'm a player where I within like turn two or turn three, I've already burned through all of my command points using stratagems, and I'm like, okay, well, the rest of the game, I guess I'm just relying on luck. That's cool. So this is fun. Uh, you're going to be getting command points every phase. Um, or every turn, you get one just for having an army that is battle-forged, and then a, a certain number based on whatever detachment your warlord is in. Two for a patrol, three for a battalion, and four for a brigade. Nothing for anything else. You're going to want to start taking those troop-oriented um, groups if you're not already doing that. And during this phase, you also resolve any command phase rules. So, for instance, the Necrons, um, they have the My Will Be Done rule. That is now resolved in the command phase. Um, you're going to see a lot of these rules being resolved here. So it's, it's just kind of a cleaning up of some of those other things, like the, the canicles of the Omnissia, the, the orders for the Astra Militarum. Other things just being cleaned up and put into the command phase. Then we have the, the movement phase. They're including an actual option for remain stationary. You didn't have this in 8th edition, and a lot of I, I did see some people arguing that like, if you really wanted to cheese the rules, you could define that every unit had to move because not moving wasn't an option in the rulebook. Even though that's kind of asinine and counterintuitive, it was the way some people argued it. Remain stationary is actually a thing you can select now, which is awesome. Again, that specificity, I like that. If you fall back, you can no longer manifest a psychic power unless you're titanic. This makes sense. You can't fall back and shoot for the most part, like, and so falling back and making a psychic test, it, 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 it didn't make sense. I absolutely abused that rule. I, I had a lot of units that I absolutely fell back and, and used that psychic thing to the best of my ability, but I understand why that's being taken away. And it looks now like flying units can no longer just fall back and shoot. I'm sure there's going to be specific units that are going to have the ability to, to do that, but as a general rule, flying units can no longer fall back and shoot. Um, transports, no longer moving after disembarking or charging. You are focused on getting out of that vehicle and then getting it out in good order. You're not, like, no more moving around and charging and all that sort of thing. Shooting phase, some cool additions in the rules here. Big guns never tire. Monsters and vehicles can still shoot at melee range as long as they're shooting at the things that are in melee range with them and they're taking a negative two to those shots. But I like this. It means that you can't just run up and like hug somebody's vehicle and be like, you know what, I can't do any damage to you, but you're not going anywhere for the rest of the game. You can at least now engage those dudes who are, who are actively with you. Lookout Sir is a adjustment on the character targeting rule. Um, you now cannot shoot at characters uh, with nine or less wounds while they're within three inches of friendly monsters, vehicles, or units of three or more models. So this is because, like, it's kind of hard to pick out somebody in the maelstrom of combat. Everything's moving around. So if the character is sitting there near other things, you cannot target them. But, you know, again, in 8th edition, I'd see people who'd have just a character sitting all by his onesie, away from everything in the backfield, and it's like, you're telling me that my highly trained space marine snipers can't see that lone dude standing by himself in a field. <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> so I'm glad they kind of retconned that and made it a little bit more realistic, where again, if, you're, if your leaders, your characters are near large groups or near vehicles, they're going to be masked by them, but otherwise, look out. Um, and then blast. There's a blast type to weapons that's being applied to a whole host of weapons. Um, of course, grenades, um, missiles, Plasma weaponry, a lot of other cool things are getting this blast template, and uh, sorry, not template, but this, this blast rule. What it means is that um, versus a unit of six or more models, you get a minimum of three auto attacks. So if you've got a, a for instance, a frag grenade that does D6 attacks, you get a minimum of three auto hits 
or auto attacks with with that weapon against six or more models. Eleven or more models, maximum auto attacks with that weapon. So that's pretty cool. I always always wondered why it was that I could take a frag grenade, toss it into a group of twenty gene stealers, and not hit a single one of them. It was like it's a frag grenade, frag. It it, it sends things. You know, the whole home. point of it is to do that. Yeah. So so this is again this this makes a lot of those weapons, those explosive weapons, a bit more realistic, and I dig that. Couple more things for the shooting phase. Hit rolls can never be modified by more than negative one or plus one. This eliminates that Eldar flyer list that makes everything at negative three. No more. Negative three becomes negative one. So this is nice. This means that, that again, I've got a couple of lists that I'm gonna have to tweak because they relied on a lot of modifiers. Uh, but this means that, that you can't cheese. Certain armies aren't gonna be able to cheese in the same way. This rule also applies for wound rolls. A wound roll can never be modified by more than negative one or plus one. Um, and then, Unmodified hit rolls and wound rolls of one always miss. That's the same as 8th edition. But in this one, unmodified hit rolls and wound rolls of six always succeed. So that's cool. There's always a chance of success. There's always a reason to roll the dice at this point, um, which I like more than just, nope, you know, it's, it's, you've been modified out. You, you can no longer hit or, you know, it's, it's just too hard. You're never going to wound it. Like, it's, this is a nice thing to have. Charges. No longer will you be able to multi-charge and just pick and choose which one you want based on the distances. Now you have to be able to engage all targets of a multi-charge with that roll. So this means if you multi-charge something that's at 11 inches and something that's at 3 inches and you roll a 6 inch charge, you, can, you can't go after either of them. So you're going to want to specify. Um, you want to specify where you're going with your charges. And another big change of the charge phase is Overwatch now appears to be limited to a stratagem that everybody gets access to, and certain units, it sounds like, from what I was reading in the rules, it sounds like certain units are going to be able to get Overwatch as an ability. But, for the most part, Overwatch is now just something that you have to, you have to plan for with those stratagems. Um, so watch out for that, that's a big change for me. In the fight phase... So the base alteration, uh, but previously, whoever's uh, turn it was, they would start. So after the charges and everything were done, it would start with whoever's turn it was, and then the next person, the other person would fight, and then back and forth. Now it begins with the turn, players whose turn is not taking place. They get to start that base alteration after, of course, the charges and anything that has the will fight first always uh, in, in the fight phase rule. Yeah, so that, that's, that, that's a big one for the fight phase. I like that. I think, I think that kind of balances things out a little bit more in the fight phase. Um, morale. An unmodified roll of one in the morale phase always succeeds. However, if you fail a morale check, it's not a matter of like you just start discarding models based on how much you fail. If you fail, one model flees, no matter how badly you fail, but every other uh, model within that unit has to take a combat attrition test. So what that means is you roll a d6 for each mo remaining model, and on a one, they flee. If that unit is below half strength, on a one or a two, they flee. So this is kind of cool. I like I like this uh, dynamic. Um, I think it reflects more the what actually happens in morale in battlefields. So that's kind of cool. Unit coherency is going to be huge here, by the way. Uh, if you're not maintaining your unit coherency, any any model that is not within unit coherency is just taken off. They die. They're they're, they're destroyed. So be sure when you're taking units off. Uh, when you're getting shot at or hacked apart, you're doing this properly. And, and, and Thumbs is sitting here looking at me like, dude, I want to talk at some point. I'm sorry, Thumbs. No, you're Rob. fine. <laughs> I, I knew this was coming in. <laughs> I'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible. I understand there's a lot. So that was my first page of notes. Oh, Jesus. 
Second page of notes. Secondary objectives for match play. I like this. This was something that the ITC was doing already, but Games Workshop kind of caught on that it was a good idea. And now there are secondary objectives play, uh, available for match play within this main rulebook. I dig that because it means that you can now adjust your, your uh, idea of victory toward what your army can achieve, which is neat. But on the subject of battle-forged armies, this is going to be very different. Now, the, the, the actual detachments still are the same thing. You know, a brigade is still uh, 3 to 5 HQ, um, 6 to 12 troops, uh, so on and so forth, like it was an 8th. But the way it's done is slightly different. Command points are now gained at the very beginning based on army size. So let's say Thumbs and I are going to play a game. We agree that we want to play a 2,000-point game. That means that both of us start with 12 command points, period. That's just what it is. We're both getting 12 command points. And so you have to buy your detachments out of those command points. So like a brigade, for instance, I'm going to be using a brigade a lot because that's that's what I'm going to be gravitating toward, I'm pretty sure, in ninth edition. Because of the way that the rules are written, I'm fairly certain I'm just going to be trying to take one brigade each time, and that's it. So you've got a, the army has a maximum number of detachments based on army size. That's kind of the same as it was in eighth. Um, so each of them uh, generate the same number of CP that they cost. So like a patrol costs two, battalion costs three, brigade costs four, but each command phase, they will generate that same number of command points for you. So if I pay for a brigade in the beginning, I pay my four command points to get my brigade. Every command phase, I'm getting five command points. That's pretty sweet. I'm digging that idea. But reserves also cost command points now, and it's based on the combined power level of all the reserve units that are going up. So 1 through 9 costs 1 command point, 10 through 19 costs 2, 20 through 20, 29 uh, costs 3, so on and so forth. So that's kind of neat too. So now the command, like you have to pay those, those command points for your reserves as well. Um, and the way those reserves work is battle round 1, no strategic reserves can come in. Battle round 2, strategic strategic reserves must be set up wholly within six inches of the battlefield edge but not the enemy edge or the deployment zone. Uh, the new maps define what the enemy edge is but obviously you can't set them up in the six inches in the deployment zone here. Battle round three and, and so on, they can be set up wholly within six inches of the battlefield edge and but still not on the enemy edge. So that's what it is for the rest of the game at that point. So that's, that's a rather big alteration for the way that reserves are going to work. No longer can you just drop your dudes in the middle of the fight Reserves have to come in from the sides, you know, like reserves. <laughs> and again, I'm sure that there's going to be specific units that, that can, that can um, they're going to get exceptions to this rule. Aircraft, for instance, get an exception to this rule. If an aircraft uh, deep strikes or, or um, comes in as a, as a reserve, they can be anywhere on the field. Another cool thing that aircraft have in 9th edition that I'm looking forward to having used against me, because let's face it, I don't have aircraft, is... Uh, no longer when an aircraft moves off the edge of the board is it counted as destroyed. It now moves in strategic reserves and your next turn you can bring it in like a strategic reserve. You don't have to pay command points for it but it just flies off the board and then can come back because you know it's an airplane and can do those sorts of things. So I like that. Again, I don't have a whole lot of aircraft but I think that's that reflects more uh, instead of just being boxed into a corner and being like, oh no, where will my airplane go? It can't possibly fly up impossible that's not how airplanes work young man impossible so yeah that's that's the the, the big changes to battleforged armies uh, reserves and then whatever command points are left over let's say so out of that 12 command points i spend four on my battalion or on my brigade and then i spend an additional two on uh putting dudes in strategic reserves that means i start the game with six command points right so it balances things out it's going to make it's going to make things a little bit e uh, a little bit more even between the armies 
Lastly on this subject, and then we are going to move on, is terrain. Terrain is now far more defined. In 8th edition, it was kind of hard to be able to tell what rules to use for specific terrain. They have done away with all that ambiguity, and now we have very specific rules for how terrain is going to work. I'm not going to go into specific detail too much, but for instance, you've got hills, obstacles, area terrain, and buildings all being defined, and then each of those types of terrain have keywords that describe certain rules. So for instance, defensible is a new type of terrain. Infantry can either hold steady or set to defend when they are charged on defensible terrain. Hold steady means that you overwatch in a five up rather than a six up and set to defend means you get a plus one to hit in that fight phase. So that's kind of cool. Certain types of terrain are gonna be defensible. So you're, you're, you're gonna be able to, to kind of hunker down and, and, and hold on to them a little bit easier. Another new one is exposed. So for instance, like a, a, an armored container of some sort is exposed. Therefore, it does not give cover if you're directly on top of it, which makes sense. You're exposed up there. It's not, it's not covering you. You're just standing on top of something being like, look at me, I'm over here. So those are just some examples of, of what the terrain is. And again, I, I encourage you to pick up the book. Obviously, ninth edition is the new thing. So as, as soon as you can pick up this book, start studying what these mean. I like the new terrain stuff because again, it, it takes away a lot of that doubt as to what the specific rules were for anything that's on the on the board. That's ninth edition in a very quick nutshell. Again, I've only been looking at the book for three days. I'm sure in, in another week, I'm gonna be like, oh, I should have included this or that or the other thing. But yeah, that's 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 ninth edition. Those are the big changes for ninth edition. So I'm I'm looking forward to playing it as soon as it's safe to do so. Um, but I'm going to try to get brushed up on those rules so that I'm so I know what I'm doing. Talking about moving on, the next episode you're going to hear from us after this is we're going to be talking about two Belagarth kind of fixtures, uh, uh, old old fixtures within our community, which is going to be the Realm of Durdamarian and a unit that is almost synonymous with Durdamarian, which is the Horde. Two of my favorite organizations. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about these guys, but that's going to be our next episode after this. And then after that, we're going to be talking about the Jedi Handbook and how it applies to wargaming. Uh, what what actual gems you can take from this from this particular book. I, I really love these in-between episodes. Just, sorry, I jumped in on you there. Uh, I, I really love these in-between. I didn't get to get in on the uh, Greybirds and the Wrath episode, but that was just other stuff happening in life. Uh, so I'm excited to get to talk about other things. Like, as much as I love talking about war, it's fun to talk about us sometimes, too. And it's a nice change of pace. It's a nice change of pace mm -hmm. and, and, and is a different approach to the episode. And so, you know, we're, we're looking forward to doing it and, and sharing that with y'all. And then Thumbs is going to be running a... Not necessarily a contest, necessarily, but he's, he's, he's a, a very good leather worker. He enjoys uh, building things, and of course, during this time, he's been uh, doing a lot of different projects. But he wants y'all, the listeners, to pick his next helm. Okay, so, or at least one of my next helms, because let's be honest, I'm always working on about 16 projects at once. That's true. But I have been collecting patterns like a madman lately i it, it's just a thing that i do of like oh i could build that someday oh i could build that someday and i've decided that i had a couple of patterns that would be appropriate for art of war gaming so i was i'm going to pick five possible helmets and let people pick which one they want me to build I'm going to list off the five here. The actual poll will be up around the time this episode comes out uh, on all of our social media. I think Facebook will be the 
the, the one where we'll actually hold it. Your options are for watching me build, and I will post how-to photos, and I might actually do some like live streaming of making at the same time. That'd be cool. Try that out. First option is the Corinthian helmet. So basically your standard Greek hoplite helmet. Or at least something... Corinthian is the closest example I could find to the pattern. Mine's a little different. But think Greek hoplite, and you will understand exactly what I am talking about here. Uh, there is also the Galea. I'm probably not pronouncing that correct because it's Latin. It is the standard Roman centurion helmet. Yeah. There will be the Kabuto, or better known as the Samurai helmet, which I, like, four minutes before we started recording, was desperately like, wait, what is that thing actually called? Because um, <laughs> Samurai helmet is rude. And broad. It's a very broad idea. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is a popular helmet I've seen for Belagarth, and it makes sense because it there you can do so many weird fancy things with them and they just have good coverage for sure uh, we can also do a space orc helmet i am not a hundred percent sure what this one will look like yet because space orcs are so much more broad and fluid in what, what they, they can do. do yeah but uh it's gonna be fun because it'd be different from all the others because it would be purposely rougher i would uh Probably take a couple hacks at it with a knife just to make sure it's got the right, right, like, scars. It'll have checkerboards and the big, like, weird orc jaw thing. And then the final one was fun because I picked something from 40k that Malark did not know what it was. I never get to be the one that does that. I'm not, I, 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 I've only been involved in this community for, for not that many years, and while I do read the books quite a bit, I, I'm not that well read up on the Ultramarines, and so he found a helm design from the Ultramarines that I was unfamiliar with. Well, and this is a pretty new thing, apparently, because it comes from after, you said his name is Gulliman? Gulliman, yeah. Reboot Gulliman. After Gulliman woke up. It is called the Victrix Guard. It is just an honor guard of the Ultramarines. They've got the kind of neat uh, uh, wings in front of the face, kind of a wing murder mask look going on there. I will say, if you pick this one, I will let people... I know it says Ultramarines in this, but I will let people pick what chapter I paint it based off of. Oh, that'd be cool. So we could, so, you know, it could be a Dark Angels or a Blood Angels or a, a Space Marines that doesn't have angels in the name. Uh, the the Space Wolves. I don't know. White Scars. White Scars. <laughs> Ooh, I would love that. Oh, they've got that David Bowie lightning bolt going on. I have a thing for lightning bolts. Don't judge me. Your entire kit is lightning bolts, mate. <laughs> I know. This is not an accident. No, no. But yeah, so this would be fun, uh, and, and, and like Stum says, this will be being posted around the time that, uh, that this episode is coming out, um, so be looking for that. Yeah. But I think that I th- we've had a, quite a, a lengthy... I know that uh, that ninth edition rules changes took quite a bit. I mean, it, it was quite a bit of notes to try to speed through, so I hope that was intelligible to all of you. Um, but I think it's about time to get into the meat potatoes of this last chapter. What do you think, Thumbs? I'm, I'm pretty ready to move on. All right, so we're going to be talking about the opportunities and advantages and misfortunes of war. Opportunities, advantages, and misfortunes of war. On the basis of this, it seems like the lesson is really easy. Just, you know, 
take advantage of any opportunities that pop up. But as something I learned the hard way, it's one thing to know that it's another to like actively recognize the opportunities as they arrive. Not just, oh, that would have been great to do there, but like, oh, this is happening. Go, go. And this kind of this kind of goes back to that coup d'el that we were talking about in previous episodes, the ability to see in, in an instant all the detail, which includes what kind of needs to be done in that instant. And remember that, that Frederick was almost always operating at a numeric disadvantage. And so just because the enemy was there, it was not a good reason to go to battle. Like you needed, you needed to not just have uh, an army and another army, but you needed to have the opportunity, like a specific opportunity to, to launch into the battle. Advantages uh, that your army have over the opponent that are going to give you an edge in that battle. And then, of course, you're trying to preempt as many misfortunes as possible. Some of these things you can't. Like, like there's just some things you cannot control that are outside of the, of, of the vein of human control. But it's still a good idea to have them in your mind and have kind of a plan if they should arise. But first, we're going to go over these opportunities. What are the reasons that you should join battle with the opponent? Because, again, you're trying to preserve your your forces while still winning whatever battle you're going on. Um, whether it's Belagarth or 40k, you know, the, when your forces actually come together, it's got to be for one of these opportunities, is what he's saying. So the first one is chasing an enemy from your country. And I don't mean, like, uh, obviously, if, if we're playing here in the United States, we're trying to chase people out of the U.S., that's illegal. Um, it's, it, we're not taking this literally. Um, but it's a matter of, like, so your <laughs> side of the board <laughs> or, your, or your side of the field, um, you, this is trying to move your enemy off of that or off of if you've got an objective that the enemy is trying to score off of, um, if you're doing ring the bell, capture the flag, if you're trying to kill the king, um, chasing an enemy away from quote unquote your country has a lot of benefits to it. It's going to give you strong morale. Capture the flag is like the biggest one for this. Yeah, for sure. But it's going to give you give you strong morale because your people are, are hopefully going to be like, I, I care about winning this match. I don't I don't want my these these people in my area getting these points. And then you've also got knowledge of the terrain. Hopefully, because it's on your side, you had a chance to familiarize yourself with whatever obstacles or terrain features might be there and you can use it to the best of your advantage. So chasing an enemy from your country, freeing up your, your ability to maneuver around, this is a good opportunity for battle. The next one is driving an enemy from a position that keeps you from moving. So specifically, this is like if you've got an enemy that is occupying a, a sniper position or a, uh, a, a some sort of fortified thing in the middle of the field where they can hit you and strike from, but are kind of um, impregnable, you got to deal with that before you can do just about anything else. At War of the Gate, we have these, uh, we have a really interesting field because there's two hills and then the owner will mow out like paths that we can go in as long grass otherwise. So it's not just like the straight on field. And he always sets up these little archer turrets that you can get into. And anytime we play on that, one of the most important things to get done is to get someone in that archer turret and stop it because it's just a safe archer. Otherwise, they are just deadly on the field. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, it also, like we were saying, this is very specific to War of the Gate and the way that the owner styles the field. It's going to be different for every single field you go to. So you're going to want to make it this assessment if an enemy is in a position that keeps you from moving. Again, this is a good reason to, to go to battle because you got to be able to, to move and maneuver freely. And again, this can be anything to do in the middle of the field, uh, something that's shaped out of the field, like what we were just talking about, ruins, uh, fortresses, anything like that. Um, 
these are good reasons for it. Another opportunity is when you force them to raise a siege. So remember, from, from this perspective, you control the entirety of the, of the theater. So if you can force your enemy to raise a siege in one section, that means that you've stopped their momentum. You've stopped their, their forward progression, and you can engage them from a different angle. So again, in, in physical wargaming, we don't often have proper sieges that, that, that occur as a part of a larger thing generally. But if you can cause your opponent to just hinder their movement, if you can, if you can do something to make them so. So, for instance, if I've got a small group of people and we find ourselves isolated in the middle of the field, away from everybody else, if we, instead of like splintering and dying quickly individually, if we just stay where we are and fight like heck in order to to kind of distract the enemy and draw them into that that kind of morass, that can free up the rest of the army to to maneuver around them, right? Mm-hmm. That's the same thing in 40k. If I've if I've got if I've got some of these new blade guard veterans and I've got them holed up in a ruin in the middle of the field and my enemy has to stop for a second and be like, okay, I can't just leave these guys here to get at my underbelly, that gives me an opportunity with the rest of my army to engage them, right? So the next one is when unable to make a move without defeating them. And this is very similar to driving an enemy from a position that keeps you from moving, but perhaps without the fortifications or without the the archer turrets that, for instance, we were talking about at War of the Gate. Um, This is just an enemy who is positioned in such a way that they have you pressed, that you are not able to maneuver to to another place safely without defeating them. And so at this point, obviously, they've kind of pressed you into a position where you have to deal with them in order to get out. So in terms of Belagarth, I could see this like if you found yourself in a corner and the enemy has positioned themselves in such an area that you can't get out of that corner without defeating that enemy, well, you've just got one option, right? Yeah, any edge of the world kind of leads up to this because it's so easy getting stuck on that spot. Right, right. And so this is a good reason to come to battle. Again, you don't want to get stuck. You don't want the enemy to be able to to position you and maneuver you the way that they want. So you want to kind of get out of there as quickly as possible the next opportunity is when possible to gain superiority so if you have a if you have an ability in this particular moment to gain superiority of your enemy if you have a chance you you look over and you're like okay i I have a chance to capture the flag or i have a chance to kill the king or i have a chance to take out one of their their main players or something like that that's a good reason to go to battle go 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 you know you i get an opportunity to go on somebody's archers you know, that's that's an opportunity to gain superiority. If, if my team has archers and theirs doesn't, that's that's superiority, right? Or if they have archers and you don't, taking out those archers is just automatically like evening out the game, if nothing else, which is still a jump towards superiority. No, that's huge. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. Or you get the chance to take out a couple of important spears or reds or something like that. Again, uh, any, anybody movers and shakers, your, your commanders, your good fighters, uh, when it's possible to gain a superiority, that's a good reason to go to battle, obviously. And then the last one is if the enemy commits a fault. You know, if your enemy just if massively messes up and, and presents an opportunity to you that you just cannot pass up. So, for instance, one of my favorite things to do, I think we've discussed this before, is to stand in the middle of the field or to have units in the middle of the field and watch my opponent move toward the edges to engage the action over there and unwittingly open up a hole somewhere near the center of their line. Now, if you're paying attention and can can capitalize on this before they can react, that's dangerous. In our battle that's going to come up later on, this that was literally the goal. It didn't work, but we'll get to that. 
but but you, if your enemy commits a fault, you want to be able to to uh, exploit it to the most of your ability. So these are your opportunities. These are the reasons why you want to join battle. Again, you're not just doing it willy nilly. You don't want just to want to join battle because the enemy is in front of you. You want to you want to play the time and and wait for the proper opportunity to present itself. And part of that is also playing to advantages. But before we move on to that, was there anything you wanted to say about uh, opportunities? Anything more there, Thumbs? No, this is one of the fun ones because it's real straightforward. It's like, well, it's, you mentioned it before we started recording that you love lists. And so I do. the end of the book here is so nice for you because he's just like, let me list everything I've taught you. And you're like, yes, please. And he does. He's, he's going through and just doing kind of a recap and being like, these are the big ideas. And I'm like, yes, I love... Part of the reason I love old army manuals because everything is just done with bullet points. Everything. Yeah. But the, the advantages is real straightforward. This is an advantage. Go for it. The the disadvantages part is where I think a little more discussion comes up. Sure. Sure. So, uh, so for these advantages, the first one is if the enemy is cut off from supplies or communication. Now, again, uh, with, with the way we do these games, because they're so isolated, they're a particular idea within like a larger battle let's say if we're doing physical wargaming or or intellectual wargaming we're not necessarily getting the whole picture all the supply lines and whatnot but in this particular case if if you've got your enemy surrounded that's an advantage if you've got them cut off from one another that's an advantage if you've got like we were saying before if you manage to kill one of the people that is shouting out orders that's a huge advantage right the next one is if the terrain is favorable to the qualities of your troops. I know we like to use the Gelf as an example, but they, they have such a, a unique kind of set of, of fighters that they're, they're good to use for this because you guys have a, such a, a high number of spears and archers. Yeah, we're support squad, let's be honest. Your frontward vector is lethal, though. Like, if you are able to occupy a narrow terrain and force people to come in at you straight on, that is a lethal line to go against straight on. So if, if, you, if the terrain is favorable to the qualities of your troops, for instance, in this particular case, if you can force the fight uh, uh, from a straight-on quadrant, that's great for the Gelf. Uh, you know, for the Dark Angels, we're a little bit different. We like things to be open. We like to be able to maneuver. We, we rely on wolf-packing strategy a lot. You want to be able to be sneaky. We do. So the terrain favors us if it has, like, broken, if it has, like, broken features, like maybe a couple of, like, uh, a little fortress thing, some hay bales, maybe it's a little bit of woods or something that we can get quote-unquote lost in and then uh, <laughs> just kind of materialize out of. Bam, I'm here. So that's stuff that favors us. Uh, so the next one is terrain that focuses the fight where you choose. So as we were just talking about with the Gelf, if they're able to find terrain that focuses that fight in the forward quadrant, then they're doing just fine. If they've got terrain where the enemy can maneuver around and hit them on a flank or hit them on the side, then then that it's not nearly as effective. But if they can force the rougher, fight from yeah. the front, yeah, uh, it, it works out a lot better. So this is... This is what you're kind of looking for. If you can find terrain that is both advantage, like uh, plays to the qualities of your troops, and that also forces the fight in such a way that those qualities can shine the best, um, that's what you're looking for out of terrain, and that gives you a very distinct advantage. Again, with with uh, with 40k, it's very much the same. Like if if I'm running a high infantry army, I'm going to try to find terrain that gives me a good cover bonus, where I can kind of move on my enemy without being directly fired upon by their big guns. Like, uh, whereas the opposite is true. If I'm going my Imperial Guard tank list, I want nice open fields of fire where nobody can get up on me without me being able to get eyes on them and shoot them. So 
again, this very much depends on who you're playing, what you're playing, and how to, how to get the most out of your army or your unit. Next would be poor positioning of the enemy. If you catch your enemy, and this one is also really good in terms of one-on-one -on -one fighting. Like, if you're thinking about throwing shots, every shot you throw when you're fighting should be a shot that can draw blood, quote-unquote. I, I notice a lot of people, when they start first start fighting, they throw shots that are kind of... It's like they're nervous. It's like they're nervous they're shots, and, and they're just... Yeah, it's like a spray and pray, but a lot of these shots would not land if they were not blocked. I try to make sure that every single shot I throw is either moving for a leg or an arm or a torso, but that's going somewhere. It means something. But a good reason to, th to throw that shot or to engage with your enemy or an advantage in any situation is poor positioning of your enemy. You know, if they've turned their back to you, if they've got their, their foot stance weird, if you've got them on a flank and they don't know you're there, you know, if they split in the middle like we were talking about, this poor positioning is a huge advantage and you got to take advantage of it. One thing, we've talked about this before, but it's one of the hard things about not having practice right now is I keep repeating stories, but uh, Hakan, president of Belagarth, one of his best skills is how to get you into a poor position without really realizing that he's moved you that way. Sure. Because he'll oh, throw yeah. like four or five shots and it'll just move you just a little bit, just, you know, set right there to block. And then he does his weird broken wrist thing and hits on the other side, but you... Just because you're like an inch out of position, or or for instance, when uh, when turkey feathers will run and and try to like engage a line, and like they'll be like, we got to get turkey feathers, and so like five people will detach from the rest of the line and go chasing after turkey feathers. Meanwhile, there's a big gap opening right there next to all the support weapons, and it's like, okay, well. You know, they may or may not kill turkey feathers, but at this point, the rest of the army is in a poor position because all those people decided to haul out after one person, you know? Yeah, it's everything we talked about wanting on the other side of the field. Like, right. during opportunities. Yep, 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 yep. The next one that he lists, or the, the last one that he lists, is if you occupy positions to cover the country and won't be cut off. So in terms of 40k, if you've got good fields of fire with your big guns, that's a huge advantage. And if, if your opponent can't get behind you and flank you, doubly so. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing with Bell, though. If you've got a good position, like these archer towers that there are on some fields, little archer redoubts, if you occupy those and you cover the country and you don't have areas on your flanks where your people are going to be able to get around you, that means that you can focus so much more on the battle right in front of you. Oh, so much. Yeah, and, and so th th these advantages are ones that you should... <clears throat> Uh, Frederick always recommends that you have more of these than your opponent, obviously. And then we, we had thought of a couple more that apply directly to the wargaming kind of uh, scene. And the first one is tech. So the kind of tech that you're using is honestly really important for both 40k and Belagarth. Because in 40k, if like you don't necessarily have to have the most up-to-date models, the most up-to-date army on the board to be able to do well. But if you don't have any models from like the last edition or so like it, perhaps not ninth it just started but like let's say you were playing in seventh you didn't get any models from eighth your your tech is kind of behind the the capabilities of your army aren't being fully expressed you know if, if you're not sitting there and, and making sure that the, the the soldiers you're using are using technology that suits them that you know that that's a huge advantage you know dark angels using plasma have an advantage over other units or other armies using plasma because if dark angels don't move they reroll once 
So if you've got no mm -hmm. hit modifiers going on, you're not blowing yourself up with plasma for the most part, and that's pretty awesome. So that's an advantage for Dark Angels when it comes to plasma. The tech is also huge in the in the foam fighting world, and as I'm sure it is in, in, in HEMA and in SCA as well, but you know, if you're using a, a weapon that's built on a PVC core with blue foam that has no balance, and you're going against One, you're somebody... you're going to break that thing in, like, a week, but... Yeah, yeah, you're going to break that thing in a week. <laughs> I mean, even more, like, look at, you know, sh how shields are done. When we started, plywood was the standard for, like, a shield core. Sure, sure. And when we started seeing more and more shields without cores at all, I was just like, oh my god, you can do that? Which is the standard now. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages to, like, you know, a big plywood shield is only going where you want it to go. People are not maneuvering that too much like they are a much lighter shieldless thing. But depending on the situation, that inability to react quickly with your big shield works for or against you. One-on-one, -on -one, I am probably going to clean someone up if they're using a 15-year-old shield. While on a big field with a line full of people with their, you know, big cord shield, strap shields, that's a lot harder for me to get around. For sure, for sure, and and, and uh, flails are the same thing. Like if you've got a flail, and uh, you've got one of these fisherman flails, you've got a large group of people. One of the one of the things that you saw, especially about five years ago, were whole units went in on getting what we call fisherman flails, which is a flail that's at la max length with a max chain, and it's designed to just. I mean, if you've ever seen somebody fly fish. That's the same mm -hmm. technique. You're just you're just throwing shots out there. And if you have an entire line of people with big shields and that flail, like that was the meta there for a while. Oh, it was everyone did it. And then the meta changed. Then the meta shifted towards towards smaller shields and quicker bats and that sort of thing. And, and it, it kind of goes all over the place. But the point of the matter is you want your tech to be as as, as suited to you as it can be. Right, so like all of my weapons are balanced. I take I take a, at least a day after I get a weapon and sit there and I play with it. I wait the handle, play with it, wait the handle, and I wait until it sits there and it just feels like nothing to my hand. I have to weight my stuff in a very specific way to get the most out of it. That's a that's a tech advantage I like to get. Which is funny because you used you used to favor the most front heavy weapons I have ever seen in my life. Well, that was before I jacked my body up and I had to worry about G-Force, you know? That's like... <laughs> how you jacked your body up, let's be honest here. Uh... Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I, I used torque uh, to the maximum capability. But yeah, so so tech is huge, and, and it changes. The meta changes, the tech changes, and of course this is true in real war too. Like, uh, when rifling first came, rifling first came on the scene, it made a big difference between those Everything who had changed. it and those who didn't. Oh yeah. And, and it, it was a rush in order to get that. Uh, same thing when, when the nuclear weapon came on the, on the scene. Like, it was, there was a rush. There was this whole nuclear arms race in order to get up there with the, the, this whole tech idea. So this isn't just wargaming. This is, this is the whole idea of war throughout forever is about evolution and adaptation to what's going on. You really want to see that it is most, like, fundamental, the shift from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. The, the oh, countries yeah. that shifted to iron suddenly were way more powerful than they ever were before. No doubt. No doubt. So yeah, tech tech can be a huge advantage. Again, it doesn't. I, I've absolutely seen people who have older gear beat people who've got the new up-and-coming stuff. It is not the advantage, um, but it definitely makes a difference. It would be lying to pretend it doesn't help. Yeah. And then the last one that we came up with was numbers. 
numbers themselves are can be a huge advantage. Of course, Frederick didn't necessarily list this one because he was always at a numeric disadvantage. So I don't know if he would necessarily see numbers at advantage because he was constantly beating people who had the numbers. Um, but I've absolutely seen in Belagarth and, and in 40k that just the sheer number of bodies that you can commit to an objective or to a, a, a particular action really makes a difference. I mean, the entire Imperial Guard, uh, Tyranids, Orcs, a lot of their strategy is built, is built on this entire idea of just having a numeric advantage. One of the only 40k games I ever played, because like when I was about 20, I, I played like three games thinking, I'll get into this, and went, holy God, it's expensive. And I was in college. I had a swarm of orc boys, and I went up against a uh, uh, gray wolves, space wolves, like close range squad, and they killed like four times as many as they lost. But I had about five times as many troops. Right. So you could afford it. Yeah. And and that's that's a that's a big thing. I know that uh, you know when we were when I was uh, in the south. I've, I know I've talked about Ravnus before, but I was just super impressed several of the events I went to in the south just the turnout that Ravnus had and Ravnus had some really good fighters and they had they had a, a really good tactics and all that other thing working for them but the fact that they also had a good numeric advantage at a lot of these events meant that they were performing extremely well I, I was there between 2014 and 2015 so I mean this was like five years ago but they were like when they turned out in force it was they were they were something to be reckoned with that was surprising to me. I come from Montana. They're nowhere near Montana. Again, I, I talk about Ravnus to people around here, and they're like, Ravnus? What's what's Ravnus? And I'm like, they're an awesome unit from the South. I only know about them because... <laughs> I, I do talk about them a lot. It's okay. I talk to Easterners. I'm like, I'm Gelf. And they're like, what the hell are the Gelf? Yeah. I mean, again, the Great Grass Sea. We've got it in the middle of the country. It It, it divides the community in a lot of ways. So those are the advantages. Did we? Did I miss anything there, Thumbs? We got all nah, the advantages. I think that's pretty straightforward. So again, you want to have more of those than your enemy does. That's the basic math with that. And so now, before we finish up this section, uh, we want to talk about misfortunes. So these misfortunes are things that you can't necessarily plan for. You you do want to have contingencies in place uh, in order to uh, to maybe deal with some of these ideas. But a lot of this stuff you're not going to be able to control. So for instance, bad weather. I can't tell you how many events I have had ruined by bad weather. Again, this isn't going to be huge for 40k because there's not a whole... I mean, unless you're doing some narrative play missions or something like that where you have some sort of weather mechanic that's that's in play. But uh, for those of us who do physical wargaming, bad weather is huge. I went I went to a Thaw Brawl where uh, my, my dominant kit at the time was a round backpack shield and a glaive. And it was the windiest event I have ever been to. And, like, I literally couldn't fight in that weather with my dominant kit because it was so windy that it was like my, both the glaive and the backpack shield were being like a sail. Sure. Like I was just having trouble control. No archery could be done at that event because you try oh, to yeah. shoot and they would just opposite. It would automatically just go totally where you did not want it to go. Yep. Wind is a big deal. Uh, rain is another big deal. Rain will ruin tents, ruin garb, ruin weapons, ruin armor. Uh, of course, Make makes mud. everything very slick. Yep, and so headshots and injuries will become a lot more common when you've got rain. It's also very fun. I don't want to necessarily. I, I, there's been a couple of events where it's been like a warm rain, and you get out there, and I mean, you get you get disgusting. But in the same moment, it, it can be a lot of fun if you've got a nice warm camp to go back to. Yeah, <laughs> you're having a great time, but you're wrecking everything. You are. 
You are. Like, I, I did destroy my sword. So, like, bad weather, that's a misfortune that can befall you. So he says bad harvest. That's not necessarily something literally that we're going to have to deal with. But one of the examples of a bad harvest may be, let's say you're planning on 50 uh, of your unit mates showing up. And only 15 of them actually show up. That there is a bad harvest. That, that can be a bad harvest. Yeah, you're like, oh, I, I was expecting a lot more than what I got. That's not great. Um, another thing we talked about here is we've, for three books, we've talked about this and we're going to talk about it in every book of how important being properly fed is. Oh yeah. And, uh, if for whatever reason, you're not properly fed that event and Lord knows I've had plenty of those. That's a bad harvest. If I am hungry, I mean, it's literally what he's warning about. Like if I don't have enough food, I'm not going to perform very well. Yep. Yep, your mind starts to go, the body starts to go. Again, I, I'm not, I, I don't eat directly before I fight. I tend to get nauseous if I eat right before fighting. But, like, once I get off the field, if I retire from the field for the day, the first thing I do is stuff my face full of every piece of protein I can possibly find. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, the bad harvest. Uh, again, you can't necessarily plan for that all the time. You can't necessarily plan if, if your unit mates are going to have last things come up at the last minute. You know, let's say you, you, you brought some food, but it went bad. You know, you were bringing some fresh fruit or some fresh vegetables, but on the way they they molded or something like that. Like, you, that, that's bad harvest. That's misfortune. I had that happen on trail crews, and it was always just like, oh, no. Yep, yep. Like, the one onion goes bad, and you're like, No! We needed that to add flavor to everything. <laughs> For the whole week. Yeah. Another thing you can't control, another misfortune, would be the decisions of officers. So even though you're given orders, even though people might have the, uh, the plan, you can't necessarily always control what people are going to do. I might be in charge of the left wing and I might be like, we're going to go forward. And Thumbs might be in charge of the right wing and he might be like, we're going to go back. And it causes a split in the forces. That and that's just, a, that's just a decision. That's just decisions he's making, decisions I'm making that didn't necessarily mesh up with one another. Also, lack of decision comes up here. The the number of times that like you have to make the call and you just go, uh, and you're, you can feel your brain just like, stop. Burnside! Burnside, or I've done it plenty of times. Let, let's not pretend I haven't. Um, that that moment of there's just too many things of the too many choices to make, and your brain decides on none of them. That falls under bad decisions of officers here. Right, right. So uh, again, this could be a misfortune. These decisions of officers. Again, not so much in 40k. Uh, you're not going to see uh, 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 bad decisions of officers because you're in control of everything and your officers aren't necessarily making their own decisions, which is kind of nice. So it's bad decisions of you in this case, I guess. Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, your decisions. They might cause misfortune. You might juke when you should have jived or something like that. Sickness. Sickness is the next one. And this is a very real topic right now, of course. But it, even in years when we're not beset by a plague, sickness always is an issue at events because people are sharing drinks or uh, just sharing close proximity, not necessarily washing their hands as much as they should, not bathing as much as they should. Same thing at tournaments. You see the same thing anytime you've got a bunch of nerds crammed into one place having a good time. Sickness is absolutely a possibility. And you cannot tell me that you do not perform worse when you got the flu or something like that like yeah you you stay up all night enjoying nightlife and the next day it you're, you're not running at 100 percent. we can count that as sickness here sure sure yeah a lot of the different things can cause and, and so anything that has you not performing at your physical peak 
um, whether it be sleep deprivation or, or, or weird chemical states or food or, or an actual bug, uh, you know, a virus or uh, bacteria or something. Or actual insects, because you've had those uh, allergic reactions that messed you up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. Like, don't forget the mosquitoes and ticks and all other sorts of bloodsuckers exist out there that are, that are ready to ruin your event. Like, there was one Chaos Wars that I didn't get to do anything. Because I just developed an inexplicable uh, golf ball collection on my skin uh, from these these bites, and I had to be on Benadryl the entire week. I, I don't know if you've ever tried to swing stick when you got a head full of Benadryl. <laughs> I wouldn't. I just straight would not. More inclined to go find a shady tree to go and just rest under for a while. And so, yeah, this this can be a real thing. And of course, when we're talking about real battle, you know, sickness is of course cholera. It's 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 any Dysentery. of the, the you know. But dysentery, bubonic plague, smallpox, it's, it's, you know, the actual sicknesses that have devastated countries, devastated armies. So, I mean, this is a real misfortune that can befall you, and, uh, and it, it can be really bad, be real bad. Because, yeah, I've definitely gotten what we used to call event plague. I don't know if that, that term is going to go away after we've all experienced this real plague. A little too real now, yeah. But it's like, it was always like a combination of like, you know, somebody would bring in a cold from California and somebody would bring in a flu from Washington and somebody from Montana would bring some sort of stomach bug. And what you'd get was this like heady mix of awful that, you know, half the people in the event would leave with. uh, And we just call it, you know, whatever it is. Well, and a lot of times people would be like, don't come to an event if you've been sick, but you might have been well for the last week, but you still have, you know the leftover that you're kind of giving off, even though you're not feeling it. And the poor people from across the country do not have the same protections that you have. Or you could get sick, uh, like a couple of days before you go, it could still be an incubation. You're not even symptomatic at that point. You arrive at the event, suddenly you pop a fever and you're, you're symptomatic and you're contagious. I mean, there's, you know, there, there are absolutely people who are inconsiderate and just come being like you know what i don't care that i have a full-blown head cold i'm going anyways like that that absolutely exists but you know people can also just bring it on accident you know not everybody's out as a a malicious monger of nurgle trying to spread nurgle's gifts to everybody you know that's uh, i never did on purpose anyways i've heard so many nurgle jokes the last four months that's it's so perfect if you're not going to make them now there is no time to make them you've got you've got an entire community of nurgle players that have been waited their entire warhammer (laughs) career to make these jokes my time has come so so yeah sickness we i think we've belabored this point um sickness is definitely a misfortune injury injury we, we we you know if you're at a tournament you know you can you can fall down some stairs you can slam your hand in a door like anything like that can happen but especially at, at anything so that's intellectual war gaming you can get injured uh but in terms of physical war gaming injury happens all the time you know, you've got concussions you've got broken fingers you got broken hands broken noses broken arms broken legs rolled ankle or like even just hardcore bruises, if it's in the right spot, can mess you up. I took a, uh, when low pro spears first became a thing, they were smaller than they are now. They were the absolute minimum size. And I took one in, like, the floating rib, and it didn't break anything, but it was just, like, a deep purple. And I couldn't, I literally could not swing my sword for, like, two days sure. of event. Sure. Or you take a really good shield check, and it knocks the wind out of you, and you, and you, and you hit the deck, and... You know, it just it just jacks you up. So I mean, like injuries can happen. You know, your prized fighter or your prized crew might might accidentally get injured. I mean, 
Turkey feathers one year, he took a red to the hand and his hand folded in half where it's not supposed to fold in half. <laughs> Couldn't help out his team anymore. It wasn't his fault. You know, nobody blamed him for it. But, you know, these are the kind of misfortunes that can befall us in something like this. Of course, more so in real war. You know, it's, it's, you know you're playing for a, for a lot more a higher stakes in real war. An injury can, you know, it takes a much realer form there. Well, yeah, in, in real war, we have that dude got shot. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a big deal, getting shot. So then uh, the next one is a blunder. So a blunder would be a misunderstood order. So, you know, if you're, if you're telling people to go forward and they, they mishear you and they go backwards, or they, you know, they misunderstand the plan at the beginning and they do something wrong, or, you know, in the case of thumbs, if you've got a wardrobe malfunction of some sort. I, uh, I had this helm that I used to use all the time. Uh, Forkbeard made it. Beautiful helm. Beautiful helm. But... It was completely covered. It completely covered the front of the mouth. There were no air holes there. There were no slats or anything. And no one could hear a word I was saying. So I'd be like, people are coming. Go left. And what everyone else in the group heard was. Did he say go right? I guess. No, maybe. And I'm like, why are you not listening to me? So you've got Kenny from South Park driving the bus at that point. Yeah, it was not helpful for anybody. So that, that, that would be considered a blunder at that point, because again, the, the, the meaning is being misconstrued and being misheard all over the place. And it can happen to anybody, but uh, you know that, that, that results in people being out of position, not where they're supposed to be, and, and it's a big deal. And again, this doesn't necessarily happen in 40K, because again, you've got a direct, you've got a telepathic communication with your dudes on the field. You're the one moving them, so hard to misunderstand exactly what's going on there. But this could also be a misunderstood rule. You know, you may be you know, thinking that a rule works, works a particular way, and then you move, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, no, it doesn't. Crap, I'm out of position, but it's too late now. So yeah, blunders. Blunders are an issue. Another issue would be the death of a valuable officer or of a valuable fighter. You know, in, in 40K, you know, if you lose one of your one of your captains, one of your guys who's giving your re-rolls, you know, that could be a, a, a big issue. Any of your any of your key players. And, of course, in Belagarth, even though each each fighter matters, having everybody on the field, each person brings something to it. Of course, numbers are a big thing you got. But we are going to have certain people who stand out, certain people who are better at killing or better at surviving than uh, other people on the field are. And if you happen to lose one of those people early on, now that could be a compromising issue right there. The number of times I've seen someone come up with the plan, being like, okay, guys, this round will do this. And then Leon's called, and an arrow just plunks them in the head, and they drop. And you can just see the entire team go, Ugh. Now what? Big size, shoulders drop. Even if you're still going to do the plan, that is just an automatic, like, oh, oh, no. And again, this this is either somebody who's a who's who's a commander of some sort, somebody who shouts orders, or somebody who's very good, somebody who's who's got a high skill in combat. A loss of either of these people, especially when everybody can see it, can be an issue. Of course, in real war, you can think uh, about uh, Stonewall Jackson. He was Lee's right hand man. Lee depended on him not just as a general, but also as a friend and, and a comrade. And so, when Lee lost Jackson, you can see how it compromised him at Gettysburg. He made a lot of decisions at Gettysburg that were not very Lee-like. But when you consider how close Gettysburg was to the death of Jackson. And, and him not having that person that he'd come to rely on at that battle, well, a lot of those those uh, mistakes make a lot more sense because of the misfortune of, of the death of a valuable officer. 
And all of these things, again, all of these misfortunes can contribute to this next one, which is low morale. Low morale is one of the biggest killers of, of any army, any unit, any, uh, you know, especially in, in the games we play. A lot of these um, changes that have been made to 40k, especially more so there. But within uh, Belagarth, there can be a lot of things that contribute to more low morale. Of course, bad weather. You know, if people are sleeping in soggy tents with their sleeping bags uh, flooded out, that can contribute to bad morale. You know, you got injured, you got sick. That's bad morale right there. You've got unit drama going down, or realm drama, or whatever, any kind of drama. You've got real life issues going on, you know? you got issues with your roommates, issues at work, issues with the spouse, issues with, you know, traffic or something like that that you didn't let go. Like, anything like that can contribute to low morale. And low morale is a, is a huge misfortune that can really play a part in, in your unit not doing well and not performing very well. And sometimes you can't control it. Again, if you have the death of a valuable officer and people are bummed out by that, again, that's not something you can necessarily do anything about. People are bummed out, you know? We can try to do things as a group to try to boost morale and try to keep everybody together and keep spirits up, but there's just some things that are going to drop that. So the next one would be exposure of spies. And again, we don't necessarily have literal spies within our communities, or at least we hope we don't. But if, if, you're, if your intelligence means are exposed, or if your plans are exposed, you know, let's say that, um, you know, I've got a plan to do X, Y, or Z at this tournament and somebody else finds out about it, that's exposure. You know, that's an intelligence failure. That's a misfortune in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a way it applies to 40K and I'm having trouble. I, I, <laughs> I don't have a huge one for this one. I'm not going to lie with you. I don't either. I don't either. That's a bit of a stretch, everything I can think about. And the next one would be negligence of your intel officers. It's the same idea. If your intel officers haven't provided you with an accurate depiction of what's going on on the ground, if you're not if the person who's in the back of the line who's supposed to say, hey, enemy to the rear, doesn't say that, and they get killed, and then by the time that you, everybody else notices, there's five more people that have been killed, that's an intelligence failure. You know, if, if somebody's not hollering out what's going on, if people aren't aware of everything that's going on, you got negligence of intel officers there. Of course, in a literal sense, um, you know, if we're arriving at the field and I'm talking to a unit mate and they're giving me bad information on who's there, that's negligence of an intel officer in that particular mm -hmm. case. And then the last one, of course, is betrayal. This is pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. You know, you have somebody who misrepresents their intentions and then turns on you to your misfortune. Uh, that's betrayal. You try to discourage it to the best of your ability, but sometimes it just happens. Sometimes people switch sides. Sometimes people quit. Sometimes people don't do what they say they're going to do. Uh, it's a thing that you see at Chaos Wars. They do like the banner battles and units will team up to try and win the thing. And then maybe a unit changes sides. We've talked about the the Gelf on the Urukai. I've seen Horde do this before. Um, and it's one of those things that I always like in theory because, man, it adds a level of like intrigue and politics to the game but you have sure. to be really careful about how you go about it because it's really easy because you know if you're spending a week doing nothing but this you get really into it and you want to make sure that you're not causing hurt feelings at the same time the feel bads again are contributing to low morale because again you have to remember that it's not just most of the time, like even if I'm out there with the Dark Angels, I don't go back to camp and hang out exclusively with Dark Angels. We got friends in other camps. We wander around. People mm -hmm. wander through. That's my main thing I do at nightlife. Yeah, so if we inflict feel-bads on everybody else and then we go try to associate with them during nightlife, well, that's not fun. Nobody wants us around because we were being a bunch of, bunch of pills on the Jerks. field that nobody wants to play with now. Yeah. 
So yeah, be careful with this. Again, it's fun to be a little Game of Thronesy every now and then for sure, but you also got to remember that these are your friends and you want to be able to break bread with them at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the opportunities, advantages, and misfortunes in war, uh, as Frederick kind of described them and, and as we've kind of distilled them for uh, intellectual and physical war gaming. you have anything else to add on that subject, Thumbs? I think we're set to go on. This is going to be a two-hour episode. Indeed. Uh, so we're going to move on now to uh, what to do during downtime. So generally when people ask me about winter fighting, my answer is just don't. But a lot of that comes from, I have to admit here, that I live in Montana, or the people that live in, you know, Canada are going to have a very different relationship with this than the people who live in Southern California. Or in the South or something like that, yeah. Yeah, really anywhere, you know, much farther South than us. Talking to my friend Ace, and I was like, oh, it, it's, you know, it's like January. And it's like, oh, it's a nice, nice summer day. Or not summer. It's, it's a nice uh, winter day. And she goes, yeah, I don't know what people complain about. Like, you know, people say 40s cold. It's not that cold. I'm like, yep, you're right. It is a balmy and sunny nine degrees out today. <laughs> and it was like, you know, 10, 15 degrees warmer than it had been for the previous week. So this is when we talk about this, even though we'll have advice for everyone, remember that this is different for us than it might be for you. And, and even in general, some of this stuff still applies to everybody. But again, obviously, oh, the, the severity of winter is going to determine a lot of what your activity level can be in the winter. Uh, for instance, I, I broke my wrist one year because I took a hit wrong uh, from a cold sword on a winter day because we were determined to practice outside. And I spent the whole next season fighting offhand single blue because my, my wrist was busted on my main hand. So, you know, there's, there's very real reasons for this. We had a season where... God, you, me, Turkey Feathers, Warmaster Hakan, Sir Tethian, and a few other rotating people were all living in the same house. And we kept being like, we keep spraining our wrists. Why? And then we're like, oh, right, because it's December and we're fighting outside. Yep. Yep. And it was, uh, it was a bad call. Who could have possibly seen this coming? So a lot of these rules also apply to what we're going through right now. So on this show, we've tried to stay away from necessarily talking about the the ongoing pandemic too specifically because we figure a lot of people are trying to listen to us as a way to kind of escape from from that uh, collective hell that we're all experiencing. That being said, uh, this does count as downtime. And so a lot of these same rules that would apply to winter quarters also apply to plague quarters. So keep that in mind as we're talking about this. So the first one that he talks about, a good idea during the winter quarters uh, phase of the year, is to keep in communication. And this is with your realm leaders, your unit uh, uh, members, uh, your, your, your realm members, friends from across the country. Just, you know, you got to keep in touch, especially during the winter when a lot of people get, their, get the blues. It's a good idea to just, you know, make sure you're, you're doing these mental health checks with each other. And just, uh, you know, we're not just a, group, a community that gets together to fight. We're also, also generally a group of friends that takes care of each other. And so oh, you know, yeah. this is a good chance to do so. Uh, we, we see this with, uh, in the realm, we'll just do like straight up, you know, health check. How's everyone, everyone report in, or you and I both do, you know, every, about once a week or so we pick a couple random friends that we haven't talked to in a while and be like, Hey, checking in. How are you? Like, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. Sure. 
Sure. And, and, and again, this is also a good idea, like, with your realm and unit, to kind of make plans. The, the winter is a good time to get your ideas in, in order for what you want to do the next season, uh, where you want to go, what, what, the, what the general goals are. And so keeping in communication with everybody keeps everybody on the same page and, and working towards the same objectives. So this, this is a good idea, too. And again, we have an off-season in, in, in the uh, Warhammer community as well. There's, there's times when there's no tournaments going on, or, or perhaps you're unable to get to them. And this is a good time to keep in communication with other people, keep an idea of what's going on in the meta, and, you know, stay involved. The next one is that the troops need to be rested. Because, again, we are, we are a very impressive species, and we are able to accomplish a lot with our bodies, no doubt. But we do break down over time, and things like ligaments and cartilage either don't repair or take a very long time to repair. And so it's a good idea to take a mild rest period uh, during this time, even if you've got winter practices. Even though we've got our very severe winters here in Montana, we also have the fortune of uh, being closely associated with the university. And so we often are able to secure a practice space during the winter. But a lot of this practice is a lot more low-key than it is during the regular season because, you know, people are trying to take it easy and not uh, mess themselves up during the off-season. Yeah, part of it's because, you know, a gym floor is way easier to hurt yourself on than the soft loam, but uh, it's also just, it's a good time to just kind of relax and chill out and more have this, like, moment to enjoy yourselves with your friends than hardcore competition time. And not to mention, it also can be a good idea just to take a break. Uh, every now and then, like take a couple practices off, or, or especially if your realm doesn't have winter practices, to, to not necessarily do a whole lot of heavy fighting, because during that time, you can still work on perfecting your form, and you can iron out a lot of bad habits. There's been s several occasions where I felt like I was in a rut, where I was sitting there and I was like, man, I don't feel like I'm progressing, or I feel like I'm backsliding, and this is really bothering me. And then I took like a, a period of time off, I come back, and because... Because those bad habits aren't so fresh, you're able to kind of move past them and kind of maneuver around them a little bit easier. And so this rest can be really good for kind of resetting your mind, resetting your play style so that you can be open to learning new things again. Well, and this can entirely be a mental thing, too. I've had people who are just, they're struggling at practices. They're trying. They want to enjoy themselves. It's not happening. Uh, so, so, you know, take a couple weeks off. If you're not having fun, why are you coming here? And trying to force yourself to have fun pretty much never works. Right. Right, right, right. That's the opposite of having fun. Yeah. But take a few weeks, get whatever's going on, and then come back when it is fun again. Is uh, I've seen people fight so much better when that happens. So the resting prevents burnout, too. Like, you don't want to... Like, the last thing you want is for something that you enjoy to become tedious or to become a chore. So this rest can also prevent that burnout. So rest. It's a good idea. The next thing is a lot of quartermaster ideas, because this downtime is a good idea to review your kit and review your gear. So this is a good time to be getting new uniforms, Frederick says. So for us, that's new garb, new shoes, new paint jobs for your models. Um, all this stuff can be done during this time. Of course, new weapons. You want to be going through and figuring out what weapons need their, their tips replaced, what weapons might have had their pommels blow out, which ones are going to be getting close to failing. Uh, for instance, I need to... I, I'm. I'm redoing my armory right now because most of my weapons, I cannot remember when I purchased them, which is a bad sign. Yeah, I definitely, I've gone a little overboard on this one because I was like before the episode being like, what have I, what have I made or remade since the pandemic started? And I'll talk about that. And it's, 
Oh my god, I've been making so much stuff, guys. I've, I'm like, oh, like, four or five helms, and a couple of breastplates, and this, and these weapons, and, like, five shields, and all of... So, all of us crafty people, this is the easy one. The moment that we have time, downtime, we're like, oh my god, I'm gonna make everything now. For sure. For sure. But it's good for the rest of us, too. Like, for me, I, I, I'm getting a new garb kit. I'm getting new shoes. I'm getting new weapons. Like, all of that stuff is... I, I'm, I'm making sure that all of that is set for the next season. Because, again, garb breaks down. It gets holes. It, it, it gets, you know, smelly <laughs> after a while. Uh, shoes, shoes are, are a big, big one. big one that we don't think about. Yeah, I need to replace my shoes, like, every season or so, because I am rough on my shoes. And then your your feet are constantly changing and growing, and and uh, and your needs are, are different based on your, your ankle support and that sort of thing. And so you want to make sure that your shoes are constantly updated to continue to do their job, which is uh, make your footwork as, as easy as possible. And then after this comes constant drill. So it's a balance, of course. Balance between resting yourself and a balance between constant drill. Again, during this, this off time, I've been running my forms, not just as a daily exercise, but also to kind of blow off some steam. Before we did this show, um, I was kind of sitting here with some nervous energy, and so I ran through with my, uh, with my boken and, and did some katas based on the 12 shots, which, again, video is coming. Don't worry. It'll be here by winter, so you guys can use it for your winter time. Please. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, inshallah. But, uh, and so this constant drill idea is is, is an extremely I- a good idea. Um, you want to keep your skills fresh. You want to keep your ideas up. Again, I'm, I'm playing Warhammer games against myself. I'm playing Kill Team against myself, reviewing my rules just to make sure that all that stuff is fresh. And then, of course, uh, exercising my body as I can. That's the other thing, a part of this. Again, you don't want to break yourself at the gym and then not have anything for Belagarth, but in the same idea, it's a good idea to maybe get up a cardio routine since you're going to have less cardio in the winter or, or perhaps start doing some light calisthenics or aerobic exercise in order to in- increase mobility, strength, or endurance. Yeah, if you don't practice your cardio and go to practice, you feel it that next practice. Oh, yeah. I mean, even though I've been trying to get some cardio in, I know the first practice I do, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to sound like an 80-year-old smoker. I'm just going to be wheezing the entire time, just gasping for air. If it helps, all of us will. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, a lot of us are going to be in that. I, I see a lot of people hitting the gym, so there's going to be a few people who are just going to be leagues ahead of the rest of us. But for, for most of us, it's going to be a hard adjustment. And the last thing in this winter quarter section is you want to keep up-to-date rosters. So you want to know who's a part of the unit, a part of the realm, and just make sure that the, the rosters are good. Who's, who's sticking around? Uh, who's coming in? This is a good time. you got downtime anyways, so get your paperwork in order. Get that administrative stuff taken care of. There's a whole lot of that happening around. Just Gelf are doing it. I know some Stygia is doing it. I'm sure other groups are doing it, but those are the two groups I see. <laughs> Dark Angels are doing it. I mean, again, we've all got our private boards, and so nobody's doing it necessarily where, where everybody can see it, but everybody's keeping in touch. Everybody's got their rosters and, and, and is doing this portion. So the, the last section here is on winter campaigns. And so this is kind of activities or events to be done in winter. And again, this, this doesn't necessarily apply to Warhammer because you're driving to a nice uh, heated building, you've hopefully got a hotel room, you're not camping out under the stars. So the winter campaigning isn't as big of a deal for us in the Warhammer community, but the, the uh, physical wargaming community, it applies a lot more so. So only do it when absolutely necessary, uh, is, what, is what Frederick advises. And part of that reason is because you don't get any time to rest or resupply. If you continue fighting through the winter months or throughout, through in, uh, throughout the, any downtime that's provided, 
you don't have the time to rest and resupply, to get those new uniforms, the new shoes, the new weapons, to implement new drill and new tactics, you know, there isn't this time. And so that, but that's an important thing to consider. And of course, you know, if it's absolutely necessary, uh, there was, there was a, I, I went to like eight events one year when I was living in Tennessee and there was a winter event that I absolutely needed to make it to. You know, you, you got to do what you got to do, but you also have to understand the risks involved uh, because there is a greater chance of sickness and injury. You know, when I, when I had that full year in Durdemarian, when I didn't have the winter to rest, I got pneumonia that winter. And I mean, yeah. I'm not saying everybody who, who works through the winter is going to get sick or is going to get injured, but you are going to have a higher chance of doing so because you're not allowing yourself that, uh, that time to rest and recuperate. Well, and it's just dangerous in winter anyways. Every, like every January, I always just get sick as a dog for like three days. Not always the same week, but always in like January. And not always the same sickness either. Sometimes it's the flu, sometimes it's the strep, sometimes it's the, the cold. We, we, also that sort of thing. They, they, they love the winter months. Them little yeah, bugs love the winter will months. will happen. So it's a good idea. I, I know some guys, like Alistair, for instance, I don't remember the last time I saw him in a winter practice. He basically, ta- even though we have winter practices here, he'll take the entire winter off because he understands that uh, not only are people more moody during the winter, but also injury is more common and, and sickness is more common. And so in a lot of ways, I look at him and I'm like, yeah, that's not a bad idea. You know, by the time the next season rolls around, you're, you're spry, you're ready to go. And the rest of us are like, oh, I, I busted my shoulder this last January and I haven't had time to heal up. He's a smart guy, that Alistair. Yeah, he is. He is. But there are activities. Again, we're not saying that you have to completely suspend everything during the winter months or, or during this town time either. Like, again, we, we recognize that doing full-on events is, is not a responsible thing to do at the moment, and most places aren't doing organized practices. Small groups of people are still getting together and hopefully doing safe sparring. Uh, but there's other activities you can do as well to keep your community active and, and keep yourself involved. Uh, for instance, I'm working on a proposal for Stygia right now uh, that is called CLASS. And of course, I'm ex-military, so we love acronyms. So that's C-L-A-S-S, and it stands for Cumulative Learning and Stygian Strategy. Yeah. And of course, it's just a class. Like, that's ex- it's very straightforward. Right, and it's just going to be a class. It's going to be like a... a and, and so the idea is when practices actually get started going again, it's going to be an organized way to teach the basics and, and advanced techniques to noobs and vets alike in the Stygian community. We've seen a very similar program in RATH. Uh, run very successfully. I've seen something done in, in Durdemarian similarly as well. So we kind of want to get something like that going here in Stygia. But during this downtime, uh, hopefully it's going to be leading discussions, kind of discussions online, keeping people thinking about this, giving people ideas for, for how to improve their home workouts or home routines, you know, keeping people's spirits up. So that's going to be the, the, the kind of the purpose of this. You know, Thumbs has been running this garb contest. By the time this episode comes out, I think the garb contest is going to be over. But this was a cool way to kind of bring people together and get the creative juices flowing, you know? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I've got people who I've not met messaging me, showing off stuff they're excited about doing. I'm like, that's that's amazing. That's cool. Uh, And it's weird to talk about on this because where we're recording, there's another week until it's done. But by the time this comes out, it'll have finished two weeks ago, I think. Ish. Right. Yeah, we have to... I've got a calendar that has all this organized because I can't keep it organized in my head. <laughs> it, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, recording schedules. But yeah, so that's that's another thing. Uh, having having uh, anything that kind of... Engage, people love competition and people love making things, so that's a, a fun way of, of engaging both of those needs that people have. Game nights is another thing we had, that we had been talked about. Like I, I think Stygia hosts like a Discord game night 
uh, every week, and I know... Yeah, Beatrice specifically, she deserves credit for that one. Because yeah, would not happen without her. Yeah, so and, and so that's awesome. That's a way to get people together, get people having fun, loosening up. And again, these things apply in the winter, too. Dirt Marion would do a, a winter... Uh, uh, I think it was like a, a dinner, or like an after-practice dinner um, that everybody was invited to. Even if you didn't go to practice, you were you were kind of invited to come to this dinner and just participate in the in the group Dirt Marion experience, which is very loud. Yeah, I imagine every we the Gelf local Stygian Gelf will throw a Christmas party every year or Gelfmas as we call it. Uh, we've done it three times now and. I don't know how the fourth one is happening, but we all had amazing plans for it. It's a lot of fun to just be weird and goofy in the middle of winter. And these small things, even if even when you have fighting going on, it's important because it's good to remind each other that we like each other and that we like spending time with each other. Sure. Sure. And, and, and that personal connection is huge. It's the reason why anybody stays in any community is that personal connection. Which also, like you were talking about having the, the Gelf happy hour every week or the or any sort of unit video chats, just like keeping in touch and, and just, you know, touching base and seeing how people are and, yeah, making sure people are doing okay. Yeah, I know twice a week that I can go on to the happy Gelfin hour and see people that I never see otherwise. And then uh, lastly, you've got virtual events. Uh, as, as of this recording, Chaos Wars just wrapped up recently. They did all of Chaos Wars, which is normally a week-long fighting event. It was done online. And so you had a bunch of different like rooms, different uh, chats. There was, a, there was an actual, like there was a DJ one night um, where you could go and, and listen to the music and, and party with people online. Like it was, <laughs> it was a really cool idea. There were classes everywhere. There were different camps for different units. Uh, it was called Chaos 23.5, the year that wasn't. And honestly, yeah. people have just kept that Discord going. They're like, nope, we're not giving this up. We need this right now. <laughs> and again, it's a good way to connect. We all need that right now. We all need a little bit of that, that human connection, a little bit of that, that, that reason why we're sticking through it together. And, and remember that we're not alone. Remember that we, we've got each other and that we're going to be able to get through this. We're going to get through this. So speaking of getting through this, I think we got through this. I think that was the meat and yeah, potatoes. I think, I think we just tore through that section right there. Yeah. So that's some advice on how to spend downtime and, and kind of the last word of uh, Frederick. So the next time we're doing an actual uh, book on this, we'll be doing Vegetius. We're looking forward to that. But uh, as for right now, I think it's about time to move on to talking about the Battle of Suomasalmi. The thing I cannot of Suo Masalmi is a really good example of uh, particularly those opportunities, advantages, and misfortunes in war, but, but also of kind of the dangers and perils of running a winter campaign, which is part of the reason we selected it for, for this, uh, uh, this battle for this episode. For those of you who don't recognize the name uh, Suo Masalmi, it comes from Finnish, which is uh, the, the country in which this battle takes place. Now, you're about to hear me butcher a bunch of names again because there's a lot of landmarks and, you know, proper names that are in Finnish. And, I mean, I studied a little bit of Norwegian. You can ask my friend Mary um, that my Norwegian is... It's understandable, but it's not great. And Finnish is a whole other linguistic group. 
Um, and so, again, if, if we have any Finnish listeners or anybody from the Norwegian-speaking countries, I am so sorry for the butchery that we're about to do, but we're going to do our best because <laughs> these are a lot of names that English speakers... The Montana accents are not helping here either. Yeah, yeah, no, no. But so for a bit of context, Suma Salmi occurred uh, between the 7th of December 1939 and the 8th of January 1940. It was between the Soviets and the Finns during the Winter War. So to give a little background on this Winter War, um, it began on the 30th of November with the Soviet invasion of Finland. This was three months after the outbreak of World War II. Okay, so, so things were in full swing in terms of like that whole continent being on fire. This is about three years before America's going to jump in. Right. So this is under the pretext of securing Leningrad. So the, 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 the Finnish border was about 20 miles or 32 kilometers away from Leningrad, which was the Soviet capital. They had told the Finnish government, you need to secede certain land to us in order for us to be able to secure this area. The Finns said, of course not. That's our sovereign land. And the Soviets used this as a pretext for invasion. So that, that was kind of the winter war. Let's, let's frame this a little bit. Um, because we had a huge number disparity going on here. The Soviets, who were under Ivan Dash, Dashishev and Alexei Vinogradov, uh, numbered somewhere between 45,000 and 55,000. Now, by the end of this fight, there would be 13,000, uh, between 13,000 and 23,000 killed or missing, and 2,100 captured. That's huge. That is a quarter to half of their people dead or missing. Yep. And that's, that's, that's a large number. Now, you compare that to the Finns, who uh, ended up being under the command of Colonel Hjalmar Silasuo. Silasuo. Yeah. Um, I'm so, I, I know he's a Finnish hero, <laughs> so I'm sorry to butcher his name. Uh, I would love for somebody to write in and tell me how to pronounce that properly. Because I tried to look it up and I was having a hard time. But they numbered at 11,500. But by the end of this, they only had 750 killed or missing and 1,000 wounded. So that is, that is a huge number disparity. Yeah, especially when you consider the numbers that were coming into this. So let's talk about how this went down. On the 30th of November, of November 1939, the Soviets crossed the border. Their objective is Ulu, which is the capital of Finland, and their aim is to bisect the country, divide it in half. Now, again, this, this was a good theory because if they were able to do this, of course, they secure the country, they create the two fronts, and then they also... Uh, we're able. We're going to get at this this rail line that was like the lifeblood of communications and supply when it came to Finland, and so that was the objective of all this. Now, okay, a little spoiler here. A little spoiler here. Um, if you've ever been to Montana, this plan would be a little bit like trying to draw a straight line across Montana and and maneuver it with your troops, because Montana is mostly logging roads. We have a few interstates and that sort of thing, but most of Montana is logging roads. So trying to get a straight shot across Montana is nigh impossible. It's going to take you through some pretty rough country. And Finland is very similar to Montana. It's a lot wetter than Montana, but you've got a lot of forests, a lot of mountains, uh, a lot of very impassable areas. So you've got these narrow logging roads that the uh, Soviet army was confined to. They, They had to maneuver on because of the heavy vehicles they were using. If you take something like, you know, Italy, France, probably Britain, although it might be different because it's an island, uh, split it in half, it is very difficult to, for the British to deal with it or the whoever. But if you do that in rural country, they're like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm just going to go through the forest anyways. So like, And they know the country so much better. The Finns knew the country so much better. And so this plan was kind of doomed from the onset. 
Now, you also have to remember that the Soviet commanders and the Soviet government in general was brand spanking new at this point. Um, the, 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 the far of the czar had, had happened within most people's memories at this point. It's about 20 years old, we think. And a lot of the older commanders and the, the people who would have had experience in previous wars were either dead or exiled. And so you had a very new apparatus and a very new idea of, of operating. And so this was kind of a testing ground for a lot of those ideas as part of the reasons the Soviets kind of had so many issues here and, and led to the refinement in further in, in, in future combat. So they, they move into Finland. On the 7th of December, the Soviets take Sulmasalmi with very little resistance. Now, the Finns had destroyed the previous village to deny shelters to the Soviets, and so the Soviets were kind of confined to Sulmasalmi in terms of shelter and protection. Now, and the Finns withdrew then to the opposite shore of lakes Nish, hmm, Niskanselka and Haukipara. I swear half of this show is just <laughs> listening to me mispronounce names. We should note that these are... That, that, that these are frozen lakes. But yes, frozen lakes that they're moving across. Um, and of course, wide open expanses. So on the 8th of December, the next day, the Soviets attack across the western lakes, attend, attempting to engage the Finns. Now again, imagine the exposure. The exposure of moving across an open lake, a, a frozen lake, uh, no cover. And uh, they were... They were it failed completely. This this attack failed completely. They were repulsed back into the city. They tried another maneuver toward Pualanka, but a newly arrived Finn detachment defeats them there as well. So, frustration is mounting in the Soviet lines. 9th of December, the de defenders are then reinforced. This is when Hjalmar Silasuo comes onto the scene. Uh, so Colonel Silasuo is given command of the forces, and the main forces is assault Suomasalmi, but they are driven back with some fairly significant losses. This is when most of these losses that we see, the, these, these killed and missing, occur for the Finns, is during this, this kind of frontal attack that they make. So then it kind of it's a stalemate for a while. The next action we see is on the 24th of December. Uh, the Soviets counterattack, and it fails to break through because the, the, the Finns are surrounding them at this point. And so the Soviets attack, but they, they don't have the support, and they've got all this stuff coming from all sides. They fail to break out. And on the 27th of December, the Finns attack Suomasalmi, a nice frontal attack. They break the Soviet line, and the Soviets retreat in panic, sweeping along the 44th Rifle Division that has been coming up to kind of reinforce this area. So the 44th gets disrupted, and their plans are kind of uh, messed up by this full retreat that is occurring with the rest of the Soviet forces. Well, and again, as we've mentioned, there's these, they're trying to retreat on these uh, uh, logging roads too. So it is not a, it is not a clean, easy retreat happening either. Exactly. Exactly. There, I mean, a lot, some of them are fleeing across lakes. Some of them are going through the forest. Like there's, it's, it's a disorderly troop back, back to the, to the Soviet lines, back to Soviet um, territory. So between the 4th and the 8th of January of 1940, the Soviet 44th Rifle Division was isolated and destroyed using Finnish tactics that are known as moti. Now, this concept of moti, if we were to describe it to you, sounds very much like wolf packing. You stay in these small isolated units, you wait for the larger unit to break apart, and then you can get local numeric superiority, you engage, you wolf pack a small portion, destroy it, break apart again, and then wait or bait other... Uh, small portions to break off of that main force until you break it apart completely and destroy it. And this worked very, very well here. 
I mean, the 44th Rifle Division was, was all but just, like, absolutely destroyed, and a large amount of equipment was left between the original retreat and the destruction of the 44th. Uh, the Finns were able to get 43 tanks, 71 field guns, 260 trucks, 1,170 horses, and a, a lot of arms and uh, weapons to, to boot, which was a big deal. You know, Finland's a small country. It doesn't have a huge industrial base, and so getting this gear was a, was a huge thing for them. Uh, in, in the whole course of the winter in the continuation war. So to talk about the Finn advantages here for a second, like the, the reasons why they were able to succeed against a much larger opponent in this particular case, they had high mobility due to skis and sleds. I love that they're ski troops so much. Exactly. You, you had cross-country ski troops that were engaging here, and they were far more mobile. Again, you've got Soviet uh, heavy vehicles that are confined to these logging roads, and then you've got these uh, ski troops, these, uh, these, these ski units that are able to maneuver wherever they want to. Um, that's a huge advantage. That's a huge advantage. There's a Bond movie, and I don't remember which one it is, other than it's not one of the very good ones, where it starts with a fight happening on skis. And I remember watching it being like, that's ridiculous. Like, there's, that, that's just silly. And then finding out, oh my god, that actually happens. Yeah, like <laughs> that's a thing. It's pretty cool. And again, in a, in a country where where a lot of people grow up on skis, uh, they were good at it. Oh, they were yeah. very good at it. As we had mentioned before, the roads, if you are bisecting Finland to uh, Uulu, are mostly logging trails. So this is confined. It's single file. It's very hard to maneuver. Very hard to respond to an attack on any side, uh, even the front. And so uh, this was a, a huge disadvantage for the Soviets. Massive advantage for the Finns. Uh, the Finns had a flexible strategy that was a lot of, it wasn't just attacking the front lines, but it also involved things like attacking kitchens and disrupting the food train because, I mean, low morale was a huge thing for the Soviets here. And part of that was because the Finns, they didn't know where the Finns were going to attack. They were just everywhere. So that flexible strategy was, was huge. You couldn't predict what was going to happen next. There was a Soviet lack of good equipment for cold weather and for snow in particular. And the Finns had the exact opposite. They were well-equipped for the snow in terms of, like, camouflage, and they were well-equipped for the freezing temperatures that they were experiencing at this time. So the Soviets, not prepared for that. Finns, very much prepared for that. Finns were also defending their home. Uh, this is a huge morale advantage. When you're in your home territory and you're like, you know, if we don't win, we're going to, to lose. We are going to lose. Uh, a lot of the Soviet troops didn't know why they were in Finland. They, there was no clear political agenda that they were included in. They were just, okay, we're going here. We're, we're I guess, you know, conquering this place, I suppose. Let's do the thing. So a, a clear objective, that clear mor moral objective was huge for the Finns. There was a Soviet counterintelligence failure as well because the Soviets were using phone lines for the majority of their communications. The Finns tapped the phone lines and then knew everything that the Soviets were going to do. That was an issue. And then simplicity. The Finn attacks were based on two very simple strategies. The first one was forward at frontal attacks, like they did across the lakes, and eventually secured Suomasalmi, and this moti strategy, which they had employed and, and were very well practiced in. And so between these two ideas, very simple ideas, and the flexible strategy that was given to, to local areas, the Finns were able to pull off a victory against a much larger force. Frederick would have been proud. Oh yeah, this is, this is a big Freddy tactic here. For sure. For sure. So yeah, I think I think that's that's the the really big bits on Suoma Salami. Do you have anything else to add on that thumbs? The the thing I keep thinking about this is everything that the 
the Soviets did wrong here is everything people do wrong when fighting Russia. Yeah. It's what went wrong with Napoleon. It's what went wrong with Hitler. It's anytime someone invades Russia, they underestimate the cold Russian winters, their supply lines get messed up, and they have to deal with kind of hit-and-run rural attacks. And so it amuses me, and I get why, but it amuses me that they just decided that those weren't going to be a problem in this one for some reason. <laughs> They're like, no, it'll be fine. Like Historically, that's never been true. And again, you have a you have a, a relatively new command set here. You've got a lot of people who are in charge who who haven't been in charge in this way before. Like this is a relatively new country for all intents and purposes, uh, in terms of how it operates. And so a lot of these mistakes, I think, can be chalked up to to just being new at the game. You know. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's Suo Masami. We talked a little bit about how everything else in the episode kind of ties in there. And in, in terms of the episode, we were able to go over the advantages, opportunities, and misfortunes that can occur in war, and, and the reasons why you want to come to battle, the factors that you want on your side, and of course, the unintended issues that can arise. Uh, and then, of course, during this downtime, it's very similar to during the, the downtime that you experience during a winter campaign or the winter quarters. And there's a lot of good stuff you can do to keep your mind sharp and your body sharp during this time. Renew your kit and keep in contact with your people uh, uh, and, and just make sure that your community stays alive and vibrant and is still there and healthy when you get back to it. And, and if you haven't had enough, if you're sitting there being like, I have not had enough of the Art of War gaming, I need more, we've got an Instagram and Facebook where we're putting out our player profiles, little interesting tidbits in terms of the, the, the battle or the histor historical era we're talking about, and then, of course, uh, the information on, on upcoming episodes and all that sort of thing. We've got a website. TAOWarGaming.com Yep, and, and that's where you can access our... Uh, information and a lot of our, uh, our our episodes are on there. Uh, of course, you can also get to the the other shows, the other Earverm site from there as well. You can check out uh, our show and any other show on the Earverm network at earverm.com, which is E A R V V Y R M. You can check out us. You can check out me and my buddy Tyler on General Nerdry, where we talk about whatever nerdy thing comes to our mind. Um, and you can check out Tyler and our friend Danny on Fried Squirms, where they talk about horror movies. And uh, also, if you if you're wanting to communicate with us, if you're if you've got a player profile to submit to the show, if you've got questions, that, critiques, criticisms, oh yeah, please do, please do. We would love to feature as many people as possible. I'm starting to run out at this point, so you guys yeah. gotta you guys gotta start sending me people, or else I'm gonna start begging again. People keep telling us we're not important. We're like I've never met anyone not important. I'm going to quote Doctor Who here. Heck, send one of your friends. If you don't think your friend would be upset by it, like, set, uh, submit your friend for it. If you've got somebody in your realm or you you're in it, who you think is pretty cool, you know, send send their information to artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll get them on there. But also any, any things we missed in the show, anything we may have gotten wrong with pronunciation or, or definitions in other languages, or even just, to, even just chat with us. We're always open for it. But yeah, I, I think for this week it has been uh, Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. <laughs>